Welcome back to On Call, a podcast from Ramirez Harshbergen, where we discuss the latest industry information relevant to our GPO member practices. The evolution of cancer care is advancing so quickly, it's nearly impossible to keep up. Genetic sequencing has radically improved our ability to get the right drug to the right patient, improving outcomes for both patients and practices. But policy is unclear, lab testing is interpreted differently, and funding is available, but how do you get it? In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Howard McLeod, internationally recognized expert in precision medicine and medical director for precision medicine at the Geriatric Oncology Consortium, and Dr. Jay Patel, chair of the Department of Cancer Pharmacology and Pharmacogenomics at Atrium Health Levine Cancer Institute, who dive into the paradigm shift in cancer care, the role of genomic testing and sequencing, and navigating policy to your practice's advantage. Really timely to be talking about the the way that genomics has started to integrate into oncology. You know, it wasn't that long ago when you and I were talking about someday this might happen, and it's now. It's uh, it's becoming uh, a big deal in terms of tumor sequencing. It's becoming a bigger deal in terms of the germline. Of course, heritable cancer has been along around for a while, but it's really from a policy standpoint, from a technology standpoint. From a practice standpoint, it's becoming an important part of care and a, a part that really a lot of people just aren't ready for. So I don't know how you've been seeing things, but love to love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Howard, if you think about how long it's been since that first human genome was sequenced and we're sitting here almost 20 years later and really still trying to identify the the most appropriate and standardized mechanisms to integrate genomics into the clinical setting. And obviously, I think we knew it wasn't going to be done overnight or even over a matter of a couple of years, but I still remember doing my fellowship back with you and really at that time, just learning about some of the early kind of low-hanging fruits of genes that, that we should be considering integrating into practice and, and you know, moving over to a, a setting where I'm sort of in a community slash academic hybrid cancer hospital. That's a, a multi-site large hospital. You know, we've got 25 to 30 sites and really trying to figure out how we can now scale this up across the system is currently where we're at. And I think we're really at an inflection point now with making really big decisions about how do we bring this um, the point of care in real time and as easy as possible for clinicians because, you know, we're all working with very busy, busy clinicians and it's a large amount of data and really trying to figure out how can we summarize this data into what providers need to know while they're, you know, sitting next to the patient's bed or their chair in the outpatient setting and applying that information to practice. And I think that's one thing that we're trying to deal with now is there's Testing availability, I think, is no longer much of an issue, at least for where most of us are located. So I think there's plenty of availability of tests. And I I think we're really now trying to figure out how do we really digest those results and integrate it into the the workflow that's not going to be too disruptive for our providers. Yeah, you know, it wasn't that long ago where a, a medical oncologist had to be a really a medical toxicologist. You know, they had to be able to wisely choose the best therapies and then manage the side effects in order to get the patient through the, the whole thing. Now they've had to become a vascular biologist, now a growth factor cell signaling expert, heaven forbid now an immunologist, 
and who knows what's coming next. And, and so the, the idea that a super bright, well-trained person can practice with their brain and maybe one, one piece of uh, one book in their pocket um, is, is long gone. And really what we're finding now is the brightest people are the ones that learn how to help, they use technologies to help them. So they can be bright at what they need to be bright at, but then they don't have to carry all that water. It is sitting there in, until it has to be used. That can be in a in a, a electronic system, you know, a VQ or something like that system. It can be in a, on an app. It can be in the, the mind of a specialist. I mean, the idea that you have to know infectious disease as well as oncology. At most centers, you have an ID person, either a physician or a pharmacist that can come in and and really take that for you and do that. And I think, you know, this information overload time, it's only information overload if you let it. Otherwise, it's really a fantastic opportunity to go forward, but we have to have the right tools. And that's, you know, that's the challenge. You mentioned you you had 30 sites. That's going to be some folks that are doing cutting edge research and some other folks that are, are seeing all sorts of different patients and doing the best they can. They all need help. And yeah. you know, yeah. the only way we can democratize this stuff is by getting these kind of tools in there to, to, to make it useful. Yeah, you know, even simply from a clinical perspective, so even if we take the genomics piece out of it, there is so much clinical information. There, the, the amount of drug new drug approvals in the oncology setting, along with the, the new you know, immune checkpoint inhibitors and other immune-based therapies, it is very difficult to keep up with this information especially for community practicing oncologists who are seeing everything from myeloma to breast cancer to sarcoma and to know and understand what are what, what are the most appropriate treatment options which now include genomic based therapies targeted therapies immune based therapies car t etc it's difficult to keep up with that information and and to be able to have what are best practices at your fingertips which is why you know we use internal clinical pathways that can be accessible on an iPad, on an iPhone, really providing those options directly for the clinician, as well as clinical trial options and being able to leverage technology to help us do that. Because like you said, there's really no one person that can really know everything and do everything and see 30 patients, 40 patients a day, it's impossible. Um, And so I think that that's why, you know, it is critical that we're able to leverage technology from everything from purely clinical treatments to how we integrate patient characteristics, genomics, drug interactions, and how do we ultimately provide the best care to each individual patient using all those factors. You know, the examples you use, you know, coming back to the, the genomics piece of it, really highlights some of the challenges for most oncologists. It, the, the right somatic platform, tum, you know, tumor DNA sequencing platform for a myeloma versus a breast cancer versus a sarcoma can be quite different. I mean, you need to make sure that the platform detects fusion, gene fusions for sarcoma. You need to make sure that the right genes are on the platform for myeloma because often the, the genes important there are not important for breast or for sarcoma. For, for breast, you know, you want to be looking at uh, hormone re- resistance with something like ASR1, in addition to the tyrosine kinase work there with PIK3CA or other, other variants that are there. You have now a few tissue agnostic approvals. So breast cancer or sarcoma could receive the same therapy if sure. they had an intract or something like that. And I, and I think often 
the technologies are sold to the individual oncologist as if uh, one size fits all. The irony, we're trying to do personalized medicine, and yet we'll think one size fits all for the, you know, we're seeing now some, some attention paid to that, that you know, at the least have a heme and a solid tumor choice. Don't expect that you know, one platform will do the whole thing. I guess if we do whole genome sequencing of a tumor, then that's fine, but often that, that takes uh, too many resources to, to accomplish. But you know, we're seeing that, and then of course, you know, on the germline side, with support of care elements, you, know, you highlighted a lot of those areas as well. Yeah, which we know can be applicable across the board to many different settings regarding the support of oncology and pharmacogenomics and trying to better understand how patients are going to respond to, let's say, opioids or antidepressants and um, integrating that into the workflow, amongst other things like drug interactions and phenoconversion. And, and that's why I think the, the way we retrieve this information and the way that it's consumed by providers is really important. How we provide considerations of using the information in practice, and 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 every clinician, you know, may have a different point of view of what they want to see, how they want to see it, what information they want and don't want, and, and to try to make it as streamlined as possible to ensure that they're getting the most important information in a concise manner that is actionable. Right? I mean, it's got to be actionable. It has to anticipate the needs of the physician and adaptable to scientific literature that is constantly evolving. And so these mechanisms of how we're delivering that information has to be adaptable to new genotype phenotype translations. It has to be adaptable to new evidence coming out. And because that, that's going to really be kind of the filter of how we're going to receive this data. And we're, we're seeing this is a little bit of a controversial point, but it's something you and I have both seen. The the molecular pathologists do an excellent job turning the results from a sequencer into some clear gene variant um, information. So when, when a molecular pathologist puts out a report, I have full confidence that that really is that gene that has that alteration that, it, that is present. And, and so that's been a relatively recent advance, you know, having properly trained molecular pathologists, having them do that reporting, you know, that, that, that's a key piece, whether it's for germline use, for, for supportive care, oncology, whether it's the somatic stuff for, for choosing a, a, a therapy, a chemotherapy or targeted therapy. But there's this gap between the end of the report and the medical decision. And we're, we're seeing now more need for, for want of a better word, medical review. And mm-hmm. like when I use that term, because they remind me that they have an MD2, but more of a therapeutic review, let's say, to say, well, yeah, you have these three alterations, but I would use drug B first, sure. followed by drug C, followed by drug A, or a clinical trial, you know, X that you didn't even consider. And, you know, same thing on the, on the germline side, saying that someone's a poor metabolizer is not the same as helping an oncologist know what to do for pain control, for, for antidepressants. For all these other uh, different areas. Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny because when we do, whether it's a panel of pharmacogenes or we're doing molecular sequencing of the cancer, it's one of those things where you're, you're doing it because obviously you want to better inform medical management and, and you're hoping to probably find something that you wouldn't have thought was there in the first place, right? I mean, we do reflexive testing for lung cancer, for example, right? EGFR, ROS, ALK, so on and so forth. But really what we're looking for is if there's something present that we're not currently testing for. 
And if we don't see anything, we're almost like, oh, darn, right? Like there's nothing else, darn, I don't, nothing else to help me choose another therapy. But then when it comes back and all of a sudden you've got a tumor mutation burden of 30 mutations per megabase and you've got 50 different mutations, translocations, infusions that have popped up. And like you said, it's where do you start first? What do you do first? And technology is a good place to start to filter that data. But like you said, there's also got to be some degree of human involvement as we're the ones treating the patients to say, okay, now based off of the clinical data, based off of the patient's characteristics, their picture, this is how we should approach this. These are the ones that are approved, not approved. This is where we have clinical trial options, et cetera. And so it's really starting, you know, we've got a kind of cascading effect where we're starting off with 50 different things. How do we narrow it down to that one? Which again, can be said the same same thing for pharmacogenes, but it, it is an interesting story that we're always hoping to see something, but when we do see it, we're like, oh crap, what do we do now? <laughs> Well, and in, in both sides, but especially with the pharmacogenes, you, you find that many oncologists have uh, either bought in that the germline is important or bought in that the somatic genome is important, but don't realize you can have both. Yeah. And, you know, we always talk about risk benefit. Well, that's germline somatic. You know, you're, you're going to see a lot of your risk as well as some of your efficacy dosing, et cetera, on the germline. And then, of course, you're going to be able to choose from amongst different targeted therapies, immunotherapy from the somatic stuff. And, you know, getting away from which genome are you looking for and getting towards how do we help this patient, I think is at least the lens that I've tried to use with some folks. is like, don't get, don't get so caught up on whether, you know, this is not a debate on whether germline is viable or not. This right. is rather application. You know, most oncologists did not do all that training to be good at prescribing antidepressants. The supportive care stuff is things are things they do because they have to, not because that's what they train for. And so I think especially the supportive care pharmacogenomics, being able to help them pick it, you know, get it right more often is a, incredibly valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even things just like simply identifying the most appropriate dose for certain cancer therapies and chemotherapies. I mean... That information is critical, and and you know a lot of our providers are now realizing since we've started doing this how informative things like DPYD testing can be. For example, for a drug that's been around since the 50s, right? And, and I think now is becoming a lot more widespread regarding testing. Yet we only know really of maybe four or five variants that we feel like are clinically actionable, but over a hundred have been identified. I mean, you've been there from the beginning of identifying and discovering some of those those SNPs. And, and I think we're gonna continue to identify more as folks transition from more targeted panels to more whole exome, whole genome sequencing based panels, which will continue to drive research while at the same time helping to, to inform medical management. You know, and you make a really good point as well about the value of testing. So if, if we were to discover the BRCA1 gene today or the BRCA2 gene today, we would not call it BRCA. We would call it just CA because we're finding it to be important for prostate, for pancreas, a little bit for, for lung, a bunch of other tumors is looking pretty interesting. Oh yeah, and breast and ovarian, as opposed to, you know, the highest frequency of germline BRCA1 and 2 variants is not breast and ovarian. You know, it's prostate, it's, it's some of these others. And so, you know, it took years to figure that out, but it was because nobody bothered to look. 
And as we're doing more, you know, like you said, with, with germline sequencing, finding new DPYD variants, finding new variants for all sorts of different applications on the somatic side, finding new variants, finding new genes, finding new applications of genes. Really, we're making the case that the, especially with the therapeutic drivers now for the inherited cancer genes, we're, we're now looking and finding a, you know, an 80 year old with non-small cell lung cancer with a BRCA1 variant that is germline and should have caused her to get breast cancer many years ago. Well, it didn't. Why? You know, so it's, it's really kind of opening up how much we've been looking at what we know to look at as opposed to really stepping back and you know, learning more broadly. Absolutely. And, and, you know, you bring up a great point of the value of all this, right? You know, I think a lot of us, we clearly see the clinical value, but there are folks who want to see the monetary value of it as well. And we are seeing, I mean, given the large application of, let's say, pharmacogenes, you know, the, so many landscape analyses have shown that well over 98, 99% of individuals carry at least one genetic variant that could be informative during their lifetime for some medication. So it, it's highly applicable. And as we do more large scale testing of not just one or two genes, but you know, most panels out there might be 20, 25 genes. And like we talked about transitioning to things like whole exome and whole genome sequencing, it's a lot bigger bang for a buck, right? I mean, it used to cost whatever, thousands of dollars, hundreds, millions of dollars to get a whole genome sequence. Now, obviously we're down to maybe less than a thousand dollars. And that information is valuable for a given patient for their lifetime. And we have to realize many of these patients, again, being treated in community settings or even academic settings, may be treated within that health system for their lifetime. They may obviously go other places, but it's very likely a lot of these patients get treated in one particular health system. So be able to, to provide that information across disciplines, across oncology, their primary care doctor, their cardiologist, so on and so forth, will ensure that this one gene, let's say CYP2D6, could be applicable for five different drugs that they may receive in their lifetime. And we would run into situations when we didn't have the clinical decision support that patients would be enrolling into trials, they'd be getting genomic information, it would end up being used once, and then done. And so again, I think that that's where, again, bringing in that technology and that decision support to say 10 years later, this can still be informative. Yeah, no, that's that is so key, and, and I think you know it's it's we've, we've all seen situations where uh, heritable cancer risk was not passed on to the next clinician, and you know something was missed. They didn't get scoped, they didn't get mammography, they didn't get whatever, and and uh, something bad happened. The same thing is at risk for for the way we use cancer genomics. Knowing someone that is a, is a poor metabolizer and then giving them a pain med that, that requires that metabolism is you know, basically a giving placebo. It's not gonna give them effect if that information is not passed on. And, and we do have issues that are arising that also take us outside of oncology. So the CYP2C19 that helps us choose the dose of voriconazole and the it helps with the antidepressant that we choose, both dose and the particular antidepressant, you also has that relevance in cardiology for, for platex, for, for stent uh, thrombosis issues and, and, and beyond. And so, you know, how do we make it so that we optimize a patient's cancer care, but also so they benefit from that should they need a cardiologist or should they need some of these other specialties? And that, you know, there's some, some real, real challenges there to, to get that all in. 
Absolutely. And you know that there are lots of resources, as you and I know, regarding what are the most appropriate genes we should be looking at, the most appropriate alleles, how do we integrate that information, how do we translate from a raw genetic result into a clinically actionable prescribing decision, which is important for folks to realize and understand that these resources are available. Again, testing is available, resources on how to apply that information are available, technology is available, and now it's almost playing like a beautiful mind and trying to figure out how do we use everything all together as again, we're, we're, at, we're at the bedside. And, and as you, you know, I have looked at sort of the regulatory part of this too, right? I mean, direct to consumer testing is becoming a big thing. Patients are showing up to our door with genomic information and they're asking for it. And they're asking their provider, please use this. How do we use this to manage my care? And so we, we've got to be ready to be able to prepare our frontline providers to, to discuss with their patients how they're going to apply that information. Yeah, no, that's, that's so important. And I think, you know, we, we like to say we're, we're patient centric. You know, I've been at places where we've had a, a patient first initiative. And what that meant is trying to make it more convenient for us to see patients, <laughs> not trying to make it more convenient for the patient. Um, sure. you know, the idea that, yeah, come in uh, two hours ahead of time for your colonoscopy. Not because you need to, but because that way you're there sitting around when we're ready. And you know, on the genomic side as well, you know, making sure that, all right, let's test, let's test early, let's test for the panel, like you mentioned, so that we're ready for what happens. You know, I, I still see, even today, people testing for one or two genes at a time on the tumor side of things, <laughs> one or two genes at a time on the germline. First of all, it's a waste of money because you can get a bunch of genes for the same cost or less. It's a waste of precious tissue on the tumor side because it's so hard to get enough tissue with that biopsy, that fine needle aspirate. It's a little bit easier with the buccal scrapings or the saliva or the blood for germline. But then you can also be prepared for things in the future. And this, you know, this idea of, of being preemptive and being ready to avoid trouble is something that we haven't had the luxury of in oncology, but we can now. You know, we can avoid a drug that's not going to work. We can avoid a drug that's going to cause harm, both with germline and, and somatic data. Yep. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think there's a, there's a lot of potential here, a lot of application, and we're in a very busy environment and trying to figure out how to filter this down for a given clinician and to allow for patients to receive that, that you know, kind of precision, personalized medicine we all talk about, we all dream of. And so, Howard, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. I want to leave us with, uh, when we had a few patients, you've had these patients as well, where we look deeply at their somatic sequence and germline and everything, and we don't find anything to, to help us choose a therapy. And then we'll get a thank you note back from the family, and we'll contact them and say, well, why did you thank us? We found nothing. <laughs> we know that every stone was turned over for our dad and we did everything we could. We can now move forward knowing that we did everything. Absolutely. And that's something obviously you can't monetize that. You can't go for it. But the, the, the idea that even when we don't find anything, it still is valuable information steering things forward for the family, giving them that confidence that they're doing all they can. You know, we're, we can't cure everybody yet, but at least we know we're doing all we can at time. That's all for this episode of On Call. We hope you join us next time as Dr. Fred Ashbury, co-founder and chief scientific officer at Here, highlights the key benefits of AI support in your practice. Click the link in the description to learn more about our partners at Here. Until next time, stay safe and thanks for listening.